Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One, back with another episode of the Box and One podcast. And we're about two months away from the NBA draft. And I want to spend a lot of the time on the podcast really diving into some of the philosophy that goes around prospects. You know, guys who can find me and my work online know that YouTube videos, scouting reports over on the Substack, they'll dive into a lot of the players specifically on, on a one player side. But I want to have some great guests on and be able to talk about just what goes into the evaluation process. And I'm thrilled to be working with this guy for the first time, a mind and a basketball uh, guru who, who I've respected from a distance for a while. And I think it's time that we we make this collab happen. Zach Milner is here to join us today. Zach, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I'm very looking forward to uh, diving into all this stuff. Yeah, so we've got a, a unique idea planned today where we're talking about help defense and how we go about evaluating that for different prospects, as well as what we value from help defense in terms of translatability to the NBA level, what makes somebody really impactful on that end of the floor, et cetera. So this is the Basketball Junkies basketball podcast right now. And, and usually I give a little bit of an intro at the start of the the pod and go into just kind of what's on my mind right now in the world of basketball. Honestly, I think there's so much depth that we can go into in this topic that it's not worth trying to split our time here today. So Zach and I are just going to dive right in. And, and I think with this discussion, the right way to kind of start us off here is that there's kind of a three pronged approach to this, right? What we look for when we evaluate help defense, what matters based on the positions the guys play or what is translatable across all players, and then how much this really matters in the grand scheme of prospect evaluation. And the best place to start there is by breaking down some of these positions to find out kind of what exactly we evaluate. I don't think NBA teams ask the same thing from a help defender who's 6'1", as they might from a guy who's 7'1". So, Zach, let's start with the big men here, NBA five men, the true post players in the league. We know that teams typically construct their defenses around this position and what it enables them to do. When you are starting an evaluation of a big man, what are some of the help defensive traits, techniques, et cetera, that really are top of your list to look for? Yeah, well, one thing I want to mention before we get into the specific positions, I think it's important to like for any position um, to, to remember that some when you're on film and evaluating defense, you can't always like you have to give some benefit of the doubt of time, because if you're not there at the practice, knowing what their scheme is or what their game plan is for that specific yep. for that specific uh, game, like are they going to how what's their pick and roll coverage? Or are they going to double on the cash on the post, double on the first dribble, all that kind of stuff or you can't even hear what they're calling out on the floor. So I think evaluating defense is tough in that aspect, if unless you're talking to the coaches and being at the practices, because you don't fully know what they are supposed to do if they're being told one thing or the other. So it's always worth keeping that in mind. But even with that, there's still a lot of stuff that you can't take away from watching film. Um, so, so yeah, with, with bigs, I, I think for anyone, honestly, not just bigs, but looking for the feel with bigs specifically, just their ability to protect the rim, whether that is altering shots by blocking them, um, just contesting them where they don't get to handle the ball or just deterring shots in general. You, yeah. there are so many times in the NBA and a few college bigs as well, where you'll see a guard get into the paint. They'll see their big, the defender at the rim waiting to contest the shot. And they'll be like, you know what? I don't want to go up with the ball. Let me kick it out. And that just 
resets the whole possession sometimes, gets the ball deeper into the shot clock, gets a tougher shot off, and that's just as valuable as as uh, contesting a shot at times. Yeah. And I want to go into that a little bit more because shot deterrence versus shot challenging, are, are they're very different things and concepts. And the biggest thing, pun intended, that you can find for shot deterrence is being big, right? Like guys who are smaller and who are driving the lane see somebody who's seven feet tall, seven four, like whatever size they are, if they've got height and they've got long arms, you're always a little bit more cognizant of trying to finish around them or maybe not even trying to get that shot off. That it's a mental game of this guy who eats up space and can cover ground is really in my head as an offensive player. Is that going to take me out of my shot? But are there skills or traits that go into shot deterrence other than just eating up space? I think just the threat also though, like the threat of you being able to block shots at the rim with the length and all that kind of stuff, just like that threat is what, like you said, the mentality kind of things that will get um, into the offensive player's head. And sometimes even if they don't kick it out, you can just force them to take a tough floater instead of getting all the way to the rim. There's so many different angles of this. Um, But other things that I look for with bigs as well is just mobility, verticality, discipline, timing i think all of those are very very important um, and then there's like what the low time how quick can you get off the ground do you have a quick second jump um one thing i want to bring up though with discipline is i think there's different ways to look at it um are you biting on pump fakes or with your verticality do your hands stay up do you bring them down are you very handsy with just how you're contesting people are you fouling it's, it's not always like biting on pump fakes there's so many different aspects of discipline i think yeah, yeah totally agree and and i think verticality is probably similar in that regard. Like just jumping straight up doesn't necessarily mean that you are great at establishing verticality. Like it's the timing of knowing when to jump. Do you have enough ability to handle contact to your chest or your core without your arms bowing over and forward so that you would pick up fouls or, you know, really be weak for that area. Like there's a huge part of just the natural balance that you have to absorb contact and not fall over. Like, I know we joke about it sometimes with Joel Embiid, how much time he spends on the floor, but like it's really important when you take contact as a rim protector and a five man to still be able to be in the play, to get defensive rebounds, to carve up space so that you're not just taking contact and then removed from the play at all. So verticality is a little bit more nuanced than, Hey, am I just jumping straight up with my arms? Yeah, and to add off of that, when you said like you got to be in the play to get the rebound, I think another important thing is you don't want a big who's going to hunt for blocks all the time when they don't need to contest a shot. That's going to take them away from the play to getting the rebound. And you see that we're like, okay, there are times where a guard will make the big step away to contest a shot at the rim, and then they'll just have their offensive, like their big man just offensive put back, easy dunk, and that's just as as easy as a layup for the guard, right? So being able to know when you want to contest a shot versus like, okay, it's already a tough shot. It's contested. Let me stay here for the rebound. That's very um, important to know as well. That's an aspect of discipline without a doubt. And, and that's, I call it the Hassan Whiteside effect, right? Like how many games did we watch when he was on the Miami heat where he would just go swing in for blocks. And it's, it's where the statistical analysis isn't always indicative of really good disciplined interior defense, because Whiteside got block after block after block throughout his career. But how many plays was he also giving up offensive rebounds when he couldn't quite get to that block and would leave his feet and would kind of lack that discipline in that regard? So, I, you know, I think those are, are, are certainly huge things. Um, 
Anything else on your side? I know you've, you've got a couple other notes or, or things that you might want to hit on. Yeah, I, I think for anything, size and strength is going to matter. Um, for, for bigs also, like, I mean, I think so. I, I want to bring up Brandon Clark, for example. Sure. Um, just going to Gonzaga for a second. I think one thing that I've really enjoyed about watching Gonzaga prospects over the years is their verticality. Like, I think when I go from, like, Brandon Clark and Chet Holmgren and even Corey Kispert, like they've all have really good verticality contesting shots at the rim. I haven't been to a Gonzaga practice myself, so I don't know if that's something that they're like focusing on in practice or not, but it's just something that I've realized over the years that their, their play, just their players seem to have great verticality contesting shots yeah. at the rim. Um, but, but yeah, Brandon Clark, for example, is someone who didn't have the best measurements, but he was such a great defender in college he still is a good, impactful guy, but like you can still see the limitations, um, even though he's impactful. So, so the measurements will always matter to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, I just want to see if you're a, a good defender in the first place, and that will that will just more be like, okay, it touches your ceiling or not. Yeah. So I think that your last point there on size being really impactful, like no position is affected by that more than the five, in my opinion, because it is such an eat up space on the interior, be able to use your wingspan and your standing reach in particular to get to different shots to, to alter things uh, on the interior. And we can, we can talk about the technique, the discipline, the verticality, the second jump and all of those things. Uh, I've always had big man defense kind of boiled down to this paradigm of polish and patience, right? You don't want guys who are too jumpy or kind of lack that discipline and go block chasing every single time. And then they need to show that they can add polish. So evaluating big men in terms of their interior defense is so much based on their age and their experience. In my opinion, that if you're a freshman big man in the game of college basketball, I've got to evaluate your natural tools a little bit more than maybe somebody who's a junior and a senior who has had more time to work on pick and roll coverages on angles and discipline and should really have those things nailed down by the time they're 21 or 22. And I think there's a trend in the NBA of in the first round in particular, teams draft younger big men, 19, 18 years old, maybe the occasional 20 year old. Because there's an understanding of what I call the, the, the rule of two years, that most big men take two full seasons in the NBA to really transition to taking on all that is required of them to anchor an NBA defense as a big man. So much communication, as you talked about, those aren't things that always pop on film. You can't always hear who's saying what or what's expected of them within their college scheme. But younger guys, you almost have to evaluate their tools and I look for patience more so than polish. But those those natural tools are, again, the size and the length and the height that you mentioned. I like guys who are light or quick on their feet that can change directions and kind of cover ground in traffic when guys try to snake or, or really maneuver around them. Shifty hips, I think, matter in that. I mentioned a strong core and strong chest earlier to not bow over through contact. Like I think you look at a lot of the elite rim protectors in our league None of them are super, super skinny. I, I think they all have at least functional strength to them. They might still be a little bit wiry, but they can take contact and keep their verticality to it. And the discipline is always going to be a huge one for me, uh, particularly not committing fouls. I think a lot of times we equate 
discipline as just leaving your feet to block shots. And sometimes discipline is knowing, hey, I'm not going to reach in at that pocket pass and try to poke it away. Hey, he's got me beat. I'm just going to stand here straight up and not contest that shot. A lot of times there's value, particularly when the entire defense is built around you of knowing which shots you probably shouldn't contest, of recognizing when you're beat. And that's a feel thing. That's a processing speed thing that guys typically develop over time. But I always get infuriated with the teams that I coach of saying, hey, man, like there was no chance you were going to block that shot. You're out of position earlier. Why'd you why'd you commit that foul? Now you're just giving him an extra free throw or two. So uh, those are the little things sometimes that stand out to me. And I'm sure you dive into so many different players here that kind of embody some of these concepts. But whether it's this draft class or in prior ones, are there some bigs who stand out to you? as really intriguing evalu- evaluations as help defenders? I, mean, I know you you brought it up yourself, like you wrote it down, but I think Derek Ivey is a really good one to talk about here, honestly. Um, I would say he probably is the best, or he's one of the best, if not the best rim protector in this class, I think. Um, I think he is an example of someone who, he does deter shots. There will be guards who get into the paint, see that he's there, and they will just pass it out and not even... Uh, con- challenge him at times and the other ones that he will block one thing i do like about him is i do think his physicality is very uh, intriguing and i think that that matchup with zach Eady earlier in the year was very fun to watch i don't want to say like he was locking up Eady. Eady still was able to get some of his that he wanted against lively but i i think that the physicality was really really nice to see there especially given the height difference um on the other side i do think he is someone who does pick up a little too many fouls. And I don't think he is someone that's like actually biting on every pump fake. I don't think a lot of his fouls come from being too jumpy and all that kind right. of stuff. I think like I mentioned with other guys, like he, he uses his hands a lot. He'll, he'll use both hands, like to body check someone or he'll, he'll reach in like that. He doesn't keep his hands straight up when he's um, trying to go vertical. So I actually, I'm more optimistic in fixing those things than I am about someone actually Fighting on bum fakes, though. So I, I do think that's like a plus for him on, on the foul side. Well, I think we saw growth in that regard throughout the year, too. Like a lot of the foul troubles and issues that he had were in the first six to eight weeks of the season. And a huge reason why he started playing better and the Duke Blue Devils really rebounded down the final six to eight weeks of the season was because he was a more reliable presence on the interior who who wasn't picking up some of those fouls. So I think the handsiness and, and particularly when you're when you have the length that Lively does, like you have to be able to use it because it is such a valuable shot deterrent. I guess one conversation we haven't really had with big men is about coverage versatility. Okay. And, you know, a lot of what we talk about thus far seems to me more drop coverage dependent and much more about the skills and the, you know, the, the space eating that takes place within a few feet of the basket. Are you evaluating guys and looking more so for, Hey, I can really project one area that we can use you for pick and roll coverage. And and I really just, that's the image. I want to go with that. Or do you value guys who can do a lot of different things? Maybe not great, but good enough to give their team scheme versatility. I do value if you can give this team scheme versatility and do different kind of coverages. Um, 
Although I do like, I do think we have seen at least throughout the regular season, a lot of teams do stick to one kind of coverage. Yeah, they'll they will mix in some things here and there. I do think when you get to the playoffs, though, having that versatility is extremely yeah. important. Um, and I actually don't think it's the worst. It depends on where you're taking this player, right? Like if you're trying to use a top ten or top fifteen pick on someone who's one dimension one-dimensional in their coverage maybe that's a little bit worse but if you're taking a one-dimensional guy who's really good at what he does in like the back half of the first round it's a lot more intriguing because you can have someone else who can do the other kinds of things on the bench that you can bring in and it's not like you're wasting like a top 10 pick on someone who's going to be a difference maker for your franchise um so i I think it also depends on what kind of pick you're using um when, when speaking about what you value um with pick and roll coverages. I think that's a really good point. And I think that that's where Walker Kessler's rookie season in Utah kind of came in, right? Like he didn't strike me as being a guy who was as versatile in terms of his coverages, at least in his time at Auburn to be anything other than a great drop coverage, big man. Um, I know Bruce Pearl played him at the level a decent amount. Like he would show and hedge. He would, he would trap on occasion. I never thought that was a good use of the skills that he brought to the table, And I think I was a little too sour on Kessler because of that. And instead, I should have been much more in tune to, hey, this is a guy who's dominant when he's near the basket. If he just gets a coach who is a little bit more uh, user-friendly, so to speak, for Walker and just keeps him closer to the basket, he can have a massive, massive impact. But I do think the scheme versatility for the playoffs is a really important point. And it tends to be why I have gravitated more over the last several years to big men like Jalen Duran or James Wiseman and Yeka Akongwu, who at least have a little bit more fluid athleticism, like their hips, their feet, the way that they can just move on the perimeter gives you more hope that they can tap into that scheme versatility in the long run. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I was probably a little bit lower on Wiseman in certain areas, sure. but I, I think that's fair. My stuff with the Kongwu was he wasn't, he was like a little bit undersized as well. Size, right. Yeah. So like there's, there's so many things that you can pick apart with all these players. Um, but no, it, it, it's really important when it comes to the playoffs um, because teams are going to find the way to exploit your weaknesses. And that's why if you can have different kinds of coverages, whether it's with one player who can do multiple or having two or three guys on your team in your big rotation um, in the playoffs to adjust to how the offense is uh, attacking you, it's just really, really important. Have you watched a lot of Adem Bona over at UCLA? Yeah, I have. I was actually able to go to a few uh, few UCLA games this year as well. Um, I personally, I think I know you're a pretty big fan there, so I'd actually want to hear your takes first. Sure. I think I might be a little bit lower on that, but yeah, I want I want to hear what you think there. So, uh, the playoff discussion is a really important one for me because of scheme versatility. But what I noticed a little bit more throughout the regular season this year in the NBA is teams starting to play at the level that. I think guards in the NBA have gotten so good at picking apart drop coverage where the big man just stays as close to the basket as possible that it's no longer a viable strategy throughout the course of an 82-game season to just dare teams to get into that area and make plays. You've got to be able to be a little bit more aggressive, particularly against all the really good scoring options there are in the league right now, to try to get the ball out of their hands more. And if teams are going to play at the level – I think we have to start drafting more towards guys who are really good at doing that. And that's what a Dem bonus strikes me as this is not, he's a little bit undersized, 
as a big man. Not much. Like he's got long arms and, and a really strong frame. Some of the, the discipline and instincts that I do look for and value. But I don't think he's a drop coverage big through and through. I think he's a guy who plays much more at the level of the ball. I love his recovery instincts and the motor that he has to be able to go from trying to contest or hedge above the elbow back down to the basket to try to you know contest a, a second penetration or drive from somewhere else. I think that the movement patterns are what are super intriguing to me, particularly in terms of how it fits into where the game seems to be trending. Yeah, I think this sort of goes back to what you were talking about, how with these younger players, you're more looking at their tools and stuff. Yep. And I agree with that to a certain extent. I still like to see a little bit more, I think, consistency, I would say, with him in certain aspects. I think with him, yep. um, I agree, his recovery is probably my favorite thing about him and, and how like, he can hedge and recover. And even like not even in the pick and roll, but when he's at the elbow and there's a drive, like yep. he will just sprint down and block the shot at the rim or in transition. He has some great chase down blocks. That's my favorite part about him, honestly. And I mean, if we go to offense, I just love how hard he runs the floor. Yes. That's awesome also. But um, in the pick and roll, there were multiple games this year where I thought that he did struggle containing at times. I think the Oregon game, their first one, Will Richardson was able to get a good amount of looks against him. I thought it was some rough footwork by Bona at times. Um, I think in the USC games, I think Boogie Ellis got a little bit of what he wanted at times as well. Um, so I, I am interested in, in looking at how that um, improves and develops over the, over the next year or two. Because like you talked about, you're trying to see um, I, I do think his, his movement stuff is nice and footwork is a little bit different where he can just improve the footwork and all of that gets fixed. Yeah. Um, but those are two things that um, those are two matchups that stood out to me yeah. where I was like, okay, a little concerning. And um, I, I still think he's a good defensive prospect for sure. Yeah. Just not to the same level as like some elite big defensive prospects in my eyes. For sure. And I see him more as a late first round grade or guy as a result of that. I don't think he is going to end up cracking my top 20. And there's some offensive limitations that go into that as mm -hmm. well. But uh, I'm going to foreshadow now a point that I'm going to bring up throughout our podcast here today. Like he cares, Bona. He's got a motor. He wants to rotate. He wants to challenge every shot at the rim. He wants to get better on that end. I think a large part of evaluating help defense is finding guys who care about doing it. And that's not just when the spotlight is on and it's game seven of the NBA finals. That's on a random Tuesday in Charlotte. That's, you know, at a practice when you're trying to go through coverages in October and figure everything out. Do you have what it takes to buy into doing the right thing on the help defensive end, rotating, being disciplined again and again and again and again and again? And I think motor and watching a lot of games to see if there are bad performances, if guys are impacted by how they play on the offensive end, if they shut down their ability to move or they just they end up you know growing tree trunks and standing in the lane and, and help position because their shots not falling, they're not getting their touches, whatever, that's a huge red flag to me. And I love Adembona for the fact that he doesn't have any of those those factors or concepts to him. Any yeah, other he, bigs you want to bring up? Um I want to bring up Ryan Kalkbrenner, I guess, for a second. I think okay. he's a pretty under-discussed prospect, honestly. I actually wrote about mm -hmm. him heading into the season. As a whole, I, 
I don't want to say I was like fully underwhelmed with this season. I just thought he could have been better, but I think that's also because I came into the season with high expectations. I still thought he had a really good season. He also missed some time because he was sick and all that kind of stuff. But if you look at Creighton's numbers with or without him and how they won and just the defensive numbers, like they were a really, really good team this year when he was playing. Um, And I just think that he does a lot of interesting things. I actually thought, his strength and weaknesses um, heading into this year and before Walker Kessler's rookie year, like Walker Kessler as a prospect and Cockbender as a prospect, I thought they had a lot of similar strength and weaknesses. Now there were some different extremes there, but I thought both were not that physical in college um, where you'd want a little bit of better rebounding, but they're really good rim protectors still. Um, Offensive limitations, but some flashes there. Like I I thought they were pretty similar. but yeah, I, I think he's someone that deserves some recognition as well as one of the one of the big prospects in this class. Yeah, I, I think that the, he's definitely proven himself as an impactful defender. Uh, and time and time again, he pops off the screen when I watch Creighton games. I I wish he had a little bit more strength. Yes, I I do too. <laughs> he's do too. Uh, yeah, he he makes me feel like I need to hit the gym a little bit. Uh, so. I, I again, very polished, very disciplined on that end of the floor. A lot of the positive traits that we're talking about, but particularly when I get drawn to younger guys who I'm evaluating the, the traits that they have and the physical tools, uh, seeing an older guy who hasn't quite physically developed in that regard tends to be kind of tough pill for me to swallow. Yeah. And I was going to bring that up as well. Yeah. I was like, okay, if he was a freshman with playing like at this level, you're like, okay, once he gets to an NBA strength yep. program, like, okay, he'll put on stuff. And I still think he will get stronger mm-hmm. as the years come by, but it definitely does say something to where, okay, now he's a few years in and it's still a question there. It's, it's, it's definitely noteworthy. And I will say on the offensive side, I want to bring one thing up with him just while we're talking yeah. about him. Um, I think with a lot of bigs over the years, people try to project shooting when they have good touch and stuff. And I think that there's something there where I disagree with a lot because it's not whether you can make a three or not. It's whether you're going to be a good enough three-point shooter to get closeouts and actually have the defense take their big away from the basket and stop protecting the rim. Um, that's why I didn't really buy Walker Kessler from the three-point shooting perspective. Um I actually was skeptical with Evan Moby from the shooting perspective. Um, I am not buying Cockbrenner to that extent where I think he can, but I actually do think he is more likely to expand his game there than uh, Walker Kessler was or what Evan Mobley was. I I actually do think that when he has taken his threes, the form looks a lot smoother. It actually looks pretty good. I, I was really hoping that he, was able to let it fly from deep more this year. I thought we were going to see it. It didn't happen, which does say something like, I mean, is it on the coach? Is it on him? Who knows? But like, if it was that good, I would assume he would have been able to to get more off, but um, I don't know. I I do buy it a little with him on the upside side where I do think there is a chance where he does get the volume to be at a level to where you have to respect him as a shooter. And we've seen guys in, NBA where like Valanciunas doesn't even get closed out on until he makes a couple threes in a game sometimes or yeah. Horford in the finals last year like you have to like Brooke Lopez is the example of someone who who gets mm-hmm. that kind of respect so it's really really hard to to get that volume high enough um but yeah the question shouldn't be can they shoot it's can they shoot well enough to get the big away from yeah. the basket yeah and I think part of that is the teammates that you have right like I'm much more willing to live with Al Horford shooting those threes because man, Tatum and Brown can really slice me up. So 
uh, it's going to be very dependent on a lot of different things there. But it's, it's funny. I thought I was the only Mobley skeptic that existed in the draft Twitter space, but it's good to know that there's somebody else who's like a little worried about the shooting progression there. Cause yeah, no, I, all, I, like all I see in here is I like Mobley yeah, as a prospect a lot, but from the, from the shooting perspective, I was more on the skeptical side there. Yeah. I thought I was the only one. So thank you for putting some peace of mind. Yeah. That doesn't mean it can't come together. I still will acknowledge that, like he can still shoot. Um, he does shoot a little bit, but it does take a lot of time for him to get his shots off now. And it doesn't look that comfortable either. And we're two years in, um, but he's still been an incredible NBA player through two yeah. years. Like one of the best defenders in the league. So all props to him, but, but yeah, the, the shooting, I'm still skeptical there. Yeah. Well, let's use this as a time to pivot towards some of the bigger wings or forwards that, that we might talk about here. We have three different, position types we're going to talk about bigs kind of wings and forwards and then smaller wings or guards and back backcourt guys really has to do more with what your primary position is that you guard and i think as we might talk about here that places you in some different positions on the court based on where the guys you're defending most frequently tend to live so zach i'm going to turn it over to you again for some of the the main traits that you're looking for when evaluating help defense from bigger wings and forwards yeah, so with these guys, if you're trying to get some secondary rim protection out of them, once again, ability to read and react to what's going on. But I think since they're not as big as your bigs, obviously, they actually have to be quicker with how they're reacting to this stuff. Because I think the smaller you get, you just have less room for error. You don't have as much time to, uh, or you don't have the tools to recover as quickly. So ability to read and react to what's going on quickly, um, active hands, jumping passing lanes, uh, whether it's tagging the guy rolling and closing out to the perimeter or baiting someone into throwing a pass and, and stealing the pass. Um, there's so many different things you can do there. I think another thing to, to keep an eye on, I think it works for the guards as well that we'll talk about later, but just like knowing when to to dig or to stunt or when do you help off of a shooter? Um, if they're, if they're a non-shooter, can you help from the strong side if they're a non-shooter or when you're going to stay attached, navigate screens, all these things, I think, um, Aside from the secondary rim protection stuff, I do think a lot of the things with the the wings and the the guards can go hand yeah. in hand. Yeah, totally agree. And I'm glad you brought up the the number one rule of defensive basketball right there, KYP, right? Yeah. Know your personnel. Like if you're exactly. guarding a shooter, you got to stay tight. If you're guarding a guy you can help off of, do you understand and realize that and end up helping? Um, the, the rim protection side of things here is what I'm really fascinated by, particularly with the bigger wings, guys who play the four a little bit more. Secondary rim protection seems to be really big in the NBA right now, particularly if what we're projecting is true of more switchability and more playing at the level of the basketball against ball screens. When your big man comes out in defensive coverages and is no longer within five to 10 feet of the basket, the guys who are defending the corner positions are the ones that have to pinch down and help and essentially cover or tag the basket and the roller in order to take away rim attempts from the offense. And the guys who are great at not just rotating and understanding when they're needed, but have those physical tools we mentioned earlier, the size, the strong chest, the length, the timing for knowing when to jump, all of those things also matter more now in today's NBA than I think they ever have. And I know we'll talk about Jairus Walker and Taylor Hendricks. Like that's, those are the guys in this class who get brought up so much at, at this positional archetype and, and the impact it has on the defensive end of the floor. But I just think particularly in 
in aggressive pick and roll defenses or when teams go smaller on the floor. We see that a lot in closing lineups nowadays. Having those secondary rim protectors and, and big wings who can cover the basket is really important. You mentioned ground coverage and like knowing when to tag or bluff and how to how to recover. All really important stuff for wings and guards. But one thing we haven't really done too much of is talk about the negative traits of help defenders. And as we get away from the big man position, this is more where I have a laundry list of things I don't want to see. And we'll talk about like teaching and all of those different points at the end of this. I think that's a, a great way to wrap up. But if I see guys do a couple different things frequently, I start to have those alarm bells go off of, can I really trust him in help defensive rotations and coverage? And, and they sound simple, but if they happen a lot, they're backbreaking for defenses, right? Don't get backdoored is a huge one. You hear youth coaches talking about this all around the country. Like just be able to see man and ball, understand when he's cutting around you. Don't just get super trained on the basketball. Um, don't stand straight up. I think a lot of times movement in the NBA happens so quickly that you can't afford to lose the split second that's needed to go from recognizing your man is moving to then following and going with him. Uh, falling asleep when their man relocates really falls into both categories right there of backdoor cutting and then just standing straight up. And then another one for me, and maybe this is a discussion point to have, is the, the idea of gambling and missing on steals and, and passing lanes. I am by nature more of a disciplined guy. So when I coach teams that I have, like it's a don't go for that pass unless you know you can get it. And part of the reason for that is I think particularly at high levels of basketball, teams who have a five on four advantage tend to get a high quality look almost every single time. Smart NBA players on offense always trump smart players on defense. And when you have a five on four advantage, it's just making it too easy for them. So I like and I value guys who can get out in passing lanes and create steals and read those weak side skip passes or know when to, to dig in there and get their hand on the ball. But I don't like guys who get their hands caught in the cookie jar too often and who swing and miss quite frequently. So that's kind of the list of don'ts for me right now. Yeah, and I think it's good to clarify, like you said, like it just can't happen too often. Yeah. It's going to happen here and there. Um, there are certain things that I'd like to see more than others. Like if you're overplaying someone, but you get backdoored much better than you standing straight up with someone just goes behind you or you standing straight up yeah. and someone just relocates and you are five seconds late to react. Right. Like there are certain things that I think I'm more accepting of seeing. Um, but all of it is, it just can't happen too often. Right. And I think that's something to, to bring up and discuss when evaluating players is you have to, understand it's going to happen sometimes yes it's just what's the number or what's the limit of okay this is now it's starting to happen too often and i think that's something that when you're when you're watching these these young guys especially when they're freshmen or sophomore like okay it can get better over time but at yep. what point is it a problem 100 percent. i think that's a really elegant way of of saying it there so let's talk about a couple specific prospects here like we mentioned Walker and Hendricks, like I, we got to do it, Zach. We got to yeah. talk about these guys here when we're talking secondary rim protection and bigger forwards, like from a physical standpoint, they both have a seven foot wingspan or longer. They're both pretty good athletes in different ways. I think Walker is more like boxy and uh, quick laterally and Hendricks might be a little bit more bursty vertically. 
where are you at with what they provide as secondary rim protectors as help defenders? And can you help us look at some of the differences between them? Because I think while they function in the same way, they achieve their goals in kind of different ways. Yeah, I think like you mentioned, I think I agree 100% with the the Taylor Hendricks a little bit like quicker off his feet getting off the ground. And I think that's something that he has done really, really well this year. Um, and his second jump is also really impressive. I, I think his I think they both have shown decent verticality. I just think that uh, Taylor Hendricks has the edge a little bit there. But I think one thing that I like with Jarish Walker more, which isn't fully just on the secondary rim protection side, but like I think he is someone who has done a really good job tagging the roll man and then closing out to this guy on the perimeter or jumping the passing lanes. I think he does a better job um, jumping the passing lanes and, and tagging the roll guy than Hendricks. And I'd give Hendricks the edge on how quickly he gets off the ground. I think on the secondary room protection. I am always amazed at how Jairus Walker seems to always be standing in the right position before a play is made. And that's a, that's a very little thing that sometimes gets under discussed, but he's in a position to, close out and recover to tag and recover to intercept those skip passes or, you know, Houston known for playing really aggressive pick and roll defenses when teams would try to hit the short roll and Jairus would be guarding the corner. Like he's already standing at the top of the charge circle so that you can't get to the rim. Like he has deterred those, those rim attempts from the short roll by being positionally sound early. Those are things as a coach I'm really drawn to. And I appreciate about a guy like Walker but I also recognize that Hendricks probably has a little bit more burstiness for ground coverage if he can ever get it to the point of reliability where he is positionally sound. So I think there's different ways to think about them as prospects, both very good, like you said, with their verticality, with their ability to challenge shots at the rim. Like I've been impressed with the highlights, so to speak, for both of them. They can make some game-changing plays on that end. But between the two, who would you say has better discipline? Um around the rim, I guess. I would probably say Jairus because I think he's there earlier. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with Jairus. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Uh, I will say I do think Jairus is a little bit more jump. I, I do think Hendricks isn't biting as biting on as many fakes, but I do think you saying the is there earlier definitely matters. Uh, what do you think of Jairus as like a, just a inbound defender? It's something that he just, he takes that like personally, he is jumping like crazy when he's trying to defend inbound passes. Yeah. It's fun. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know how much functional he steps over the line, like every time also, to be honest, they just don't call it, but <laughs> they don't, they never, it's smart. Refs don't, <laughs> they don't call, call it. it. They do what refs don't call. Yeah. yeah. I, I, like, I, I love Jairus Walker. Like this is, I'm an unapologetic fan of his defense and his help defense. I think he's also really, really good on ball, which, you know, this, we're not going to talk about that too much in, in the episode here today, but I think that really does matter. Um, when we scale down to guys who are a little bit smaller, I think that the rim protection stuff becomes more rare, right? The bigger you are, the longer wingspan, the bigger of a position you guard a, the more likely you are to be able to get to those balls physically, but B, the more likely you are to guard guys who are in the corners and therefore in a position to rotate. And this is like a reverse engineering discussion where when I have a really smaller guard, I don't want him to guard the corners if he can help it because he's not going to be impactful as a tagger. That a lot of times it's easier to have length across the floor because 
Now that position isn't getting hunted. Teams are really smart at the NBA level of putting the smallest and weakest defenders in a position where they're forced to tag at the basket. And evaluating modern NBA is about positional size. And I think we hear that as a buzzword everywhere, right? Everyone loves guards who have those skills. But uh, I, th- I think of the guards like an Anthony Black and a Soar Thompson and a Men Thompson who might end up playing the one at the NBA level. And I think it's really important for them to also show some of that weak side rim protection stuff of a guy who is not necessarily a forward, right? Who might project more as somebody who defends guards at the point of attack. A sore Thompson is one of the best as a weak side rim protector and shot blocker that I've seen. So that's a little marginal advantage that I think doesn't get brought up enough in this conversation is we can, we can break down position groups and guys who we know are really good or really poor and some help defensive habits, but guys who are outliers at their position really, really matter to me. And a sore Thompson has kind of established himself as one early on. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to add is, and I don't even think it's always as like the, the smaller you get, if you go like four or five, when Cam Johnson was a prospect, pretty much, I liked Cam Johnson a lot as a prospect. Everyone who's been following me knows that I thought he was a really smart defender, made the right rotation a good majority of the time. Um, but then you see when he gets to the next level, he could still be the guy who's tagging the role man or they're trying to rotate to the rim. And he has some, de- like, he's not the strongest guy. He's not the most athletic guy, but he has some size to him. He's still sometimes not even able to alter yep. shots to the rim. It doesn't, just doesn't matter. So it's not always just when you go to guards as well. It's just yep. sometimes you, you don't have the length or the, the, the explosiveness to, to block shots, even if you are six, seven, six, eight, um, right. it's just a much, it's much harder. So yeah, once you are six, three, six, four, it gets, it just gets harder and harder. Right. I think your margin for error shrinks the bigger you are, but that doesn't guarantee impact. And look, I think there's a couple other guys that we had talked back and forth about that we might want to bring up here in this wing or bigger wing category. You had mentioned Gonzaga earlier in terms of the verticality stuff. So I want to hit on verticality first and then maybe go to screen navigation, which is another aspect of this. Um, Gonzaga does a decent job of teaching verticality as you have established here and and Corey Kispert and other wings who have come through that program show those traits. I see parts of that with Julian Strother, Um, but I don't know how successful he is. I think he's disciplined in the way that he jumps and knows that he has to be straight up, but I don't think his timing for knowing when to jump is great. And he picks up a lot of fouls by kind of leaving his feet prematurely or he'll jump at it vertically and somebody will still be taking a bounce to go cleanly around him and now have an uncontested layup. Like there's so much of just the natural feel and timing of when to jump, not just how to jump. Has that jumped out the page to you with Strother or anybody else? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that to an extent. I think with Strother, um, that hasn't been the difference maker of my evaluation of him on the sure. defensive end, though. Um, I was hoping that he would see some improvements, though, on the on the off-ball defense this year. I don't think it came, unfortunately. No, me um, I still think he's an intriguing prospect because when you're that size and you can shoot, you're you're intriguing. Um, but yeah, I don't think his his off-ball defense got much better. I think he gambles a little bit too much, also on the perimeter. Um, I know you want to talk about verticality more. I think you're, we'll go back to Strother in a little bit, sure. I'm assuming. So we can go back yeah. to your, your verticality point there. Yeah, and, and like Grady Dick is another guy who gets right. brought up a lot on the defensive end of the floor. And so much of that is about the on-ball defense, right? He's 6'8". He doesn't seem like he's got a super strong frame. 
I don't think he's a poor defender. I've called him a targeted defender, that he's the guy on the floor that most teams are going to try to attack. They might not have success every single time down, but it's a winning gamble for the offense to try to go at Grady Dick time and time and time again. I think that's, yeah, I think that's the best way to describe it. Honestly, Um, he's, he is a player that teams will try to target. Um, He actually has really good hands when he, he gets some great strips when you're driving. And and that's one of the things that he has going for him. Um, But, but yeah, there are times where you're able to drive through him as well. So I think that's the best way to describe it. And he cares. That's another aspect that he does care about defending and having effort. And he does try to do things vertically. Now I have seen, a lot of decent plays where he can rotate to protect the rim, where he does try and care about contesting shots vertically. What's your take on Grady Dick as a help defender? Because I think that if he if you feel better about Grady's help defense, it might ease some of the the struggles that you have with how often he's going to get targeted on ball. I've been on the optimistic side of his of his help in off-ball defense all year. I think there have been struggles throughout the year more early on. I thought it got better as the year progressed. But I think he's a good example of someone where, like, how much is too much getting backdoored? I do think he did get yeah. backdoored a decent amount, and it probably was too much. It probably was too much. Uh, not even probably. It was too much. But yeah. I do think there was improvements throughout the year, and I think he generally is smart. And I think it was more of, like, adjusting to the scheme and it just – he's still a young freshman in the first month of college basketball yeah. at, a, at a big school, seeing him settle in and adjust. I think the second half of the year, he showed a lot more on that end. Yeah. So for guys who are shooting specialists, I have a theory and this applies to both Strother and Grady Dick. It's that they are really good at defending. Typically, this is typically, they are really good at defending other shooting specialists because they understand how to navigate screens. They know what to look for and read. And typically, not every time, typically, they have good enough footwork because they've repped those actions a million times to know how to most easily get through them. I have decent upside and optimism about Grady Dick in that regard. I have slim to none when it comes to Julian Strother. Have you noticed something similar with his stream navigation? I knew where you were going with this, and yeah, yeah I, I agree. It's he he gets caught and dead on way too many. He dies on way too many screens. It's it's rough, but I, I actually think that is interesting. The whole point, and I think it's true. Like once again, I'll go back to Cam Johnson because I wrote about him however many years ago. But that was one of my cases for him as well. I was like, I actually I, I thought he was a really smart off ball defender, but there was also a specific role for him yeah. to where you can put him in his chase. He was pretty decent at chasing guys. You go to Houston Mallet Pepperdine. I think he has some questions on defense, but he has a specific role of, oh, he's actually really good at getting around screens. He hustles hard, yeah. he understands the screen navigation. So I, it is interesting. Um, but yes, Strother does struggle with screen navigation both on and off the ball. Yeah, and he, he struggles with, again, like getting back door to decent amount. He stands straight up. He, he does gamble and miss a lot. So many of those factors that you hope guys don't exude in order to become a positive help defender, I've started to see in him. And this isn't Julian Strother's slander. In oh, no, way. I like I still like Strother. I've always liked these yeah. wing shooters. I've loved Cam Johnson, Corey yep. Kisper. I like them. Um, but I do think Strother is behind where they were defensively. That doesn't mean Strother can't work out. I just think his path to success is his shooting just has to be otherworldly where it's going to outweigh the defensive negatives to where he doesn't have like 
even for Cam and Kispert, they still had to have really, really good shooting to outweigh what they do on defense, even though they can do some stuff on defense. It's just Strother has much less room for error with his shot, pretty much. Totally agree. Totally, totally agree. So let's move to those guards and those smaller wings. Again, as you slide down the lineup, your on-ball responsibilities change as well as some of your off ball, because you might guard the corners less. For example, you're spending more time in the middle third of the floor, bouncing around at the point of attack and guarding guys who you're chasing them through ball screens. A lot of the time, I tend to think that ball screen navigation is an on ball defensive technique. Um, it matters and it translates and correlates to off ball screening actions and, and does show some value there. But I don't want to make sure I want to make sure we're not diving too deep into ball screen navigation throughout this conversation. So with that little caveat there, are there any different things or or similars that that you want to reiterate here that you look for with guards and smaller ones? So still like the screen navigation point when they're chasing guys off screen, still important here. Um, I think like Contavious Caldwell Pope's a good example of someone who does that extremely well, actually um, when he's off the ball. But once again, just instincts is important. Uh, I like the effort, especially at when you have smaller size. I just think the, the effort always matters. But when you are having these like physical limitations, the effort matters more, I think, at this uh, at this size. So that's what I like to see. Active hands is really important. I want to see that whether – I think we've seen it multiple times with, with the Lakers in the, the playoffs or even the play-in where Austin Reeves is not even looking at the ball, which yeah. he's literally just face-guarding his man. His hands are bo- – his hands are up and he's deflected a pass without even looking at the ball. He's gotten two steals and like just having active hands is good to see um, whether you can bait people once again, like the, like the wings throwing a pass and jumping the passing lane, just having good instincts. Like I said, a lot of it is very similar to the, to the wings who aren't doing the secondary rim protection, but yeah, I, I still think I, I want to see more effort from, from this position as well. I think that's a great way to put it. Effort to me is related to, quickness in recognizing what you're going to be asked to do. And the smaller you get, the thinner of a window it is to be able to react to different things. So I love proactive defenders who are smaller guys who understand X outs and rotations, or maybe close out into a passing lane to prevent the ball from swinging around on an extra pass. Those things are, are important as positive factors. Um, Obviously we can, go through the same laundry list of the, you know, the don'ts of right. backdoors and standing up off ball. Like those things are pretty universal. Uh, but as you'd mentioned, when you're smaller, you don't have the same margin for error. So you really can't afford to do it. There's one other thing that I look for here, uh, which is I call it help yourself defense, a little different than help defense. If you're a, a guard and a smaller guy and you find yourself on a physical mismatch in the post, you're not an on-ball defender until the post catches the basketball. Right. But you have to do your work early to full front, to find ways to not get sealed and buried, to just care about putting up a fight down there. I call that help yourself defense, right? You can't ask for others to bail you out of situations where you're getting hunted and mismatched on ball if you're not willing to help yourself. So the, the proactive recognition and then fight there from smaller guys is really, really important to me. Yeah, if you can do your best to make sure they don't even catch the ball in the first place, that's great. It is hard, but if you can get them to catch the ball in a bad position, that's still fine. Um, and hopefully you have your teammates in position to help you out if, you, if they do end up catching the ball. But I, I like that. I like calling it help yourself. 
Yeah. I also think with this, like we've got to talk about the smaller you are, the less of a margin for error you have in so many different areas defensively. Uh, it's not to say that because you are small, you cannot be an impactful defender, but there are a lot of ways that you are going to be hunted and exposed. And you've got to be able to have really, really high basketball IQ to understand how to avoid some of those situations. So, so much of it is going to be size and physical uh you know, build dependent. I agree. Uh, should we move on as the players that we want to talk about? Yeah. Here? So I, I think we both have outlined maybe a couple guys who are some yeah. of the best in this class in terms of their help defense from the guard positions there. I'll let you take it away. Yeah. So Jalen Clark is someone who I've, I really enjoyed watching this year. I thought he was the best defender in the pack 12, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually want to say Kobe Johnson is really good also. He's not going to be in this class. I do like Kobe yeah. Johnson at USC a lot. But Jalen Clark is is really, really awesome. I think that a lot of the things that he does is he was he's so good at baiting you into those passes. Or yeah. if he's on the weak side, he is there waiting for you to throw that post entry and he will be stealing it from behind. He will do whatever it takes. He's just always in the right spot at the right time, whether it's um, on rebounds, on loose balls, poking balls loose, diving on the floor. There's yep. just so much that I like about him. What, what do you want to say there? Well, I, I think that there's a discussion to be had in here about like the different levels of being a good help defender, mm-hmm. right? There is the disciplined guys who are just positionally sound. They're in the right spots. They're reliable that they're going to do their job. And then there's that extra level of guy above them. The guy who plays the cat and mouse game and wins and can manipulate to the offensive player with the ball what he wants that guy to do so that it results in the desired outcome for the defense. And that's where Jalen Clark is so good. Like he has mastered every single rotation and has the ability to be positionally sound, but man, does he play mental games with opposing ball handlers and saying like, yeah, I dare you to throw that skip pass just so that he can pick it off. It's masterful stuff. Yeah. Him on him on the weak side is very, very fun to watch because he will just he'll he'll create events. He'll he'll create steals or just turnovers consistently. And it, it happened time and time again. Would you call him a gambler? Um I don't know. I, I don't think I'd call him that much of a gambler. I think he's very he knows what he wants to do. I think, I, I don't know if like he's actually like gambling and failing that often. See, and that's the thing. I think that he is a gambler. He just wins almost every time. So that's it fair. doesn't feel <laughs> like a gamble. It's calculated. Right. Right. And, and that's where to go back to that point earlier, like I don't mind guys who gamble. I love that Jalen Clark has the instincts and the ability to make these plays. He just can't gamble and lose. He's, he is really, really smart on the the defensive end there. And another guard who I think gets brought up a lot as a a galaxy brain defender or just a really impactful guy is Kaysom Wallace. And I don't know if you see similarities or differences in their help defensive profile, but what what are your thoughts on Kaysom thus far? I I think Kaysom's instincts and his, his motor and what he does is, is really, really intriguing. Um, He's another guy. He, he's someone who will like, after you get a defensive rebound, he will be waiting oh, in yeah. the backcourt for your pass yeah. so he can jump that and, and steal it and finish it just like right away. That's something that I like from him. Um, Jalen Clark actually will catch you from behind a lot. Yes. Like he, he will try to sneak up on you. Um, but but Kaysen's like, he'll just wait for you to throw that outlet pass and he will steal that. Um, 
with with Kaysen, though, I don't I know we don't want to talk too much about on ball stuff. I just feel like with him, a lot of the interesting discussion for me comes from defensive versatility. Yeah. And I know that is there is some on ball stuff there, but like when I go back and I was watching him and their the Kentucky UCLA game, actually, I thought Jalen Clark was able to get a decent amount of good looks against Kaysen. And that was where I was like, okay, if Jalen Clark scoring over Kaysen a little too easily, and it wasn't always on ball, it was some like coming off screens as well. I'm like where do I stand on Kaysen's versatility? And that doesn't mean like one game should uh, matter that much. It's just one game. But then you have like, okay, the Kansas State game where Marquise Noel is going by Kaysen a little bit easy as well at times. So what position is he? Does he have that much versatility? I actually don't know. I think that's where I'm a little bit lower than others are on his versatility aspect. But on the, back to the off-ball and health defense, I really, really like his instincts. I think um, what he can do, once again, he can bait you to what he wants to do, and he will make sure he makes something out of it. He has really, really good hands. He'll consistently get deflections, and he will dive on the floor for those loose balls. So I think there are differences between him and Jalen Clark, uh, but, I, but I do like him. Yeah, uh, I, I echo a lot of that there. Um do you think a closeout is a help defensive evaluation or an on-ball defensive evaluation? Because, like, we're going back and forth with a couple different areas here, and, like, I think it's kind of, like, neither and both, but I'm curious as to what you'd say. I would say the actual closeout is on-ball, but what you're doing before, whether it's tagging or positioning or whatever you're doing before is part of the off-ball help defense. Yeah, it's. It, I don't it's think like, it really it, matters that much to what you're going to classify it as. To be honest, like for for a discussion of what you're going yeah. to put it under, it does. But sure. like in terms of an evaluation thing, it doesn't really matter too much what you're classifying it as. Yeah, I totally agree. I also think closeouts are just majorly important in basketball. Oh, it, I agree. 100%. One of the most important things that you can do on the defensive end of the floor, and while rim protection and all of these other fancy things that we talk about and contesting on the inside is important the best way to contest a shot in the inside is to not let the ball get there. And the biggest way to accomplish that is to be balanced on your closeouts to win the first step and keep the ball in front of you. So like so much of what we'll talk about is just help defense here, but the on ball stuff really, really matters. Yeah. One more thing I want to add though, is this sort of goes back to teams game plans as well. And sometimes there are teams will be like, you know what? They have a lot of shooters we are okay running them off the yep. three point line. We actually want you to bite on their, like if they're, if they're going to shoot, like we're okay if you bite on their pump fake and make them dribble the ball inside the arc and we are going to be prepared to contest their shots. So this is where sometimes it is important to know what their game plan is because yes, yeah, so I, I don't want to knock a player too hard for getting beat on the perimeter. If it's three times in the same game, if that was their game plan in the first place. Totally agree. And that's where I excuse some of like the smaller Nick Smith things that a lot of people will bring up about like he always leaves his feet on closeouts. Like he's probably instructed to do that if he's doing it as often as he is. I can't be certain about it, but I think that there's probably a higher likelihood there. The reason I bring up the closeout thing is because I see a lot of younger players struggle with the angle that they take from Mm -hmm tagging to then going to the ball and closing out. And particularly once you get a feel for some coaches, defensive philosophies and you know, okay, they want to close out with their inside foot high and force them towards the baseline or away from the middle of the floor. You know what to be looking for, for the angle of the closeout. And this is appropriate for me because the one guy I want to bring up here a little bit is Keontae George. Um, I think that he is a little bit slow right now on recognition of closeouts or 
scramble rotations, and then the angles that he often takes to go from tag to closeout have a wasted step or are just a little bit veered out of where they should be that put him in a poor position to guard the basketball. So whether closeouts are on bar or off ball doesn't really matter. As you said, if you don't do the right things before the pass is thrown or you have a poor path to your man while the ball's in the air, you're setting yourself and your team up for failure. Yeah, and I would agree with that has been a problem with Keontae. I think I the biggest problem with me on that end has been consistency. I yeah. think that he has shown some impressive flashes on that end. Um, even before this year when they were playing in like the global gym in, in Canada, like over the summer, I thought he had some very nice defensive plays then. And I think he had some throughout this year as well, but the consistency is, is always a question with him. And at some point it's like, okay, well, if it's a consistent question for this long, is it actually going to get better? I'm not sure. I'm not out on it. I actually am still pretty optimistic, mm-hmm. but um it's definitely something to know and he needs to do a better job of, of taking better angles and sliding his feet because i've actually seen multiple possessions where he actually does slide his feet pretty quickly and yeah. completely stops drives like i think when he is locked in he can be a pretty decent pretty good defender yeah. it's just he is not locked in anywhere near as often as he needs to be totally agree and and i think that there's a little bit of like a lack of care that, that's mm-hmm. on that end. Like he needs to have that fire lit underneath him by coaches and teammates to get dialed in on that end, particularly when the shot's not falling or he's not getting the touches that he he desires. His game is heavily impacted by how the offense goes. Uh, I think probably the same for a lot of young guys, but uh, that's whether that's changeable or not over the long term, kind of remains to be seen. Are there any other guards that you want to talk about here? Uh, any other guards? I don't think so off the top of my head, honestly. Okay. All right. Yeah, we've we've had a pretty good conversation about you know, similar traits from both wings and guards here that there might not be too many different topics to to necessarily hit on. But um, I did mention there with Keontae the idea about improving. Right. And when you're evaluating particularly younger players, you want to make sure you're not writing them off as bad at something now that they can get better at in the future. And when we talked about evaluating help defense throughout the first hour of this podcast, I think we have to close and kind of pivot to the idea of how much do we value good or devalue poor help defenders at the pre-draft level here. Uh, I am a coach by trade. I tend to believe that help defense and rotations can be taught. And honestly, if I didn't, like I'd probably be a pretty <laughs> shitty coach. So uh, it's important for me to have that philosophy. But I, I do have a question to you, Zach, with all of that said. Do, do we spend too much time evaluating help defense or, or letting the impact uh, change our evaluation on a prospect when it's something that really can be taught through a lot of repetition? I don't think that we spend too much time on it. I, I think there are definitely certain things that you can coach. Um, but I also think there's a lot of things that you can't like a lot of the help defense and off ball defense is not like you can teach someone. This is the rotation that you have to make, but it's not that easy to teach them. You have to make it this quickly and make this decision in that quick of a time to actually impact the play that's happening. Right. And I think that is where it is tough where like some players just have better feel than others. And they're able to recognize what's happening quicker than others. And that half a second, that split second difference is the difference in being able to get to the rim in time to block a shot or giving up an open layup. And there is such 
such little time um, in between that there really isn't much time to to waste. So yeah. I think that there are certain things, and I, I think something like an angle, like we're talking about with Keontae, that's something that I think is easier to drill into someone like, okay, let's let's practice these closeouts and all this kind of stuff. But then if when you have a team going through different sets that you're not totally familiar with and you only have half a second to realize what's going on before you have to rotate, that is not the easiest thing to rep out and actually get someone. So I think that's just where the instincts come in. And that's why I think instincts and feel is very important. Um, on the matter of like reps, one thing that I think could be a whole nother podcast, like there's a whole other <laughs> discussion for some other people is just like, when you get these players, you're like, oh, they haven't started basketball until they're 16 or 17. And you know that they have a lot to improve on. I think that's very true. But at the same time, like you're not getting those missed years back. Or like when you're hurt for two or three years, you're not getting those missed years back. So it's 100% worth noting, oh, they are going to be a little behind in certain aspects. But it also means they're going to take longer to get to where they need to be. And when you're drafting someone, like sometimes you don't have five or six years. You want to know what you're going to have in your first two or three years because then you have the rookie scale contract being up. So, yes, it, it does matter that you were starting basketball late or you missed time due to injury. You're not getting those years back. And I think that's an interesting discussion to go back and forth on or like a, a topic as well. Yeah, that's uh We'll have to have you back for the uh, the part two for for that one there. Uh, I think all all your your points about feel are really important there. So it sounds like NBA buzzwords that we always talk about, right? Feel and IQ, positional size, and and like having length and athleticism helps you cover up for maybe some errors or or at least get to places a little bit quicker. And then the one for me that I'm going to keep harping back on, particularly when it comes to evaluating help defense, I want to see that you care. There is no substitute for wanting to make that rotation, for not saying somebody else is going to get this or being still and wondering if I should rotate because there's some confusion going on on the court. Like help defense is a lot of the times about gray areas and finding a way to just make an active play and guess that the right decision is going to be the one that you're going to make. If you can care about help defense and wants to be positionally sound and wants to buy into coachability or just effort on that end of the floor. You have come a long way in showing me a demonstrable skill that I do believe carries over to the league. I agree. Uh, just, just caring is, is important. Um, effort, caring, all, yeah. all that stuff. I, I, I agree. Zach, I had a blast. We said 45 minutes. We're over an hour here. We did it again. This was awesome. This was awesome, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Before you get out of here, please let everybody know where they can find you and what you have going on in your life. Uh, yeah. So Zach Milner, 13 on Twitter. Um, Mark Schindler and I do playbacks for NBA games. Uh, we call season's over, but we're doing the playoffs. And once the playoffs are over, we're probably just going to go back and watch some old college film from like 2014, 15 on YouTube. So come by and watch with us. Um, I haven't released any written things over the last month or two, but I am in the middle of working on a few things. Last year I wrote, or last year I put out an NBA range database where I went through and got the NBA range for all the prospects. I'm in the middle of putting that together right now. So I'll tweet that out when the database is done. And I'm also in the middle of working on a piece of, the defensive minded wings and how you can value those guys who have the shooting question 
questions and how valuable they are on an NBA team. So uh, those will be coming in the next month or two, uh, maybe in the next few weeks, but, but nothing recently. Well, Zach, that's a must read for me, particularly appropriate to the conversation that we had today on help defense. I knew it was going to be a great one, but uh, I think this was this was a ton of fun and the time really flew by. Thank you so much again for joining us and to all the uh, the hoopaholics out there. Keep it locked to the YouTube channel for more scouting reports uh, videos coming out soon. We've got a, another mock draft coming out next week and then uh, starting to do more draft philosophy stuff, looking back at some lessons learned from the last few draft classes as well so thank you all as always for your support we'll see you next time